2: Bring in show music, please.
0: This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. Stand
2: by, Andy. Straight up there.
0: CNBC's essential morning show.
3: Which camera? Oh, hello.
0: Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. You
2: guys hearing this?
0: Yep. Today on Squawk Pod. The World Economic Forum 2020 might have wrapped, but there is still plenty of CNBC's coverage that didn't make it to broadcast, like... The full interview with Alex Karp, CEO of high profile and controversial tech company, Palantir.
3: Currently, when you're a warfighter, your
2: life depends
3: on your software. They will never trust you if you pull the plug just because you're unpopular
0: and Andrew Ross Sorkin's reflections on it.
2: He takes shots at Silicon Valley. Basically admitted he has taken the Google Maven project, which of course was controversial, and there were walkouts at Google about that, and even got into whether NBS really could have sent a WhatsApp text to Jeff Bezos.
0: The Anchor's debrief on this week's events. It's
2: a good Davos this year. It was.
0: It was nice and, warm. and your usual host, Katie Creamer, catches up with Nick Dunn, managing director and executive editor of CNBC Events, to fill us in on what's happening behind the scenes.
1: <laughs> we just uh, saw a colleague fall into a snowbank, and that's kind of the way wh- life works here in Davos.
0: I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Friday, January 24th. Squawk Pod begins right after this.
4: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
0: This is SquawkPod. This next segment is a conversation Andrew had with Alexander Karp, co-founder and CEO of Palantir. The tech company provides software and data services for, well, a lot of groups, as you'll hear. But it's probably best known for its relationship with the U.S. government.
2: Also quite controversial, uh, given the company's role working with the government in defense on ICE, with our allies, with corporations. There's always been a view it's a very secretive company.
0: In 2019 alone, the company signed one and a half billion dollars in U.S. government contracts. One of those contracts, an $800 million deal with the Army. Palantir beat out Fortune 500 company Raytheon for that one, marking the first time that a venture-backed firm received that caliber of recognition from the Pentagon. Possibly more than anything else, though. It's the company's partnership with Immigration and Customs Enforcement that's created a stir in Silicon Valley, as well as internally at Palantir. Alex Karp founded the company alongside a few other entrepreneurs, including famed venture capitalist Peter Thiel. He co-founded PayPal and Founders Fund and invested in Facebook. You know him. Anyway, Alex is.
2: He is one of the most uniquely interesting people in the world of business.
0: He rarely does interviews, but luckily for us, he speaks to Andrew.
2: I got to tell you, it's every time I have an opportunity to speak with him, and really we've been able to do it now annually here in Davos, you're just sort of blown away by the things that he says.
0: So here it is, Andrew Ross Sorkin's annual interview with Alex Karp, CEO of Palantir in the alpine ski town of Davos, Switzerland.
2: Alex, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. So this was a very big year for you. We, uh, we, we signed a here. number of huge contracts. This is true. We did very well. So what happened?
3: Well, you know, I guess the longer version is about five years ago, we looked at our product offering and decided to rebuild our core offering for the government, start with a commercial product, which can be used commercial and government, and revitalize our strategy of going to market. And we saw the results uh, last year, but dramatically this year. And so that ended up with two uh, very, very large contracts that are public, a number of contracts that are not public and a mission impact that I think we're very proud of.
2: And just so we're clear, that's at least publicly $1.5 billion in new contracts with that's the US true. government. That's true, Can you speak about those contracts?
3: Well, two of them are public. One of them is to essentially give the DOD a global operating system in software with a, uh, in a on a timeline that otherwise wouldn't be realistic, so transform the way decisions are made inside what amounts to the largest data organization in the world in t- on a timeline that is very, very aggressive. Another is a little more classified, and, um, and we're, we're just pouncing forward. The core mission of our company always was to make the West, especially America, the strongest in the world, the strongest ever been, uh, and for the sake of uh, global peace and prosperity. And we feel like this year we really showed what that would mean.
2: How much of the business today do you believe is being driven by the government work versus the corporate work?
3: Well, in the last couple years, most of our revenue has been commercial. Most of our clients okay. have been government. The government, uh, Our government work inside and outside of America is so strong uh, because of how it compounds. that. It's gone from being 60-40 commercial go- government to probably 50-50. The mission impact of our government work is the thing we are obviously the most proud of. And-
2: how has the past year this sort of larger geopolitical conversation around decoupling, what has that meant to the business?
3: Well, you know, decoupling and and strict regulation is a bonanza for Palantir. When we looked at what what should be done with data 15 years ago, most people weren't thinking about it, and instead of thinking of this simplistic problem of aggregation of data, we thought about data as how can you aggregate and disaggregate. Disaggregation meaning how can you have silos while at the same time being able to call up at a granular level what you're allowed to see in that silo. And what does that mean at a political level? As uh, countries and states both need to have a horizontal view, but want to have a more vertical view. They need a sought-for platform that can allow, say, two countries to work together without sharing all the information, or two jurisdictions to work together, or two companies that, for example, a global company will have data stores in America and data stores in Europe, where only a subset can be shared. And our architecture is, is, is quite frankly, built to deal with that, and was built 15 years ago to deal with that, and revitalized five years ago. So this, decouple, these, these, this decoupling world combined with uh, regulation, quite frankly, also combined with deep skepticism towards consumer internet in the valley, is very much helping us. I
2: want to get to the deep skepticism of the valley in just a moment, but I wanted to ask you specifically about the protests this year, about your work for ICE uh, and that ICE contract and what it's meant for your business. But
3: the, we, as everyone who's followed our company knows, we take what amounts to strong but often uh, controversial positions. Our position of our company from the beginning was we were going to make America and the West stronger and safer by integrating world-class software into what amounts to legacy data systems. One of our contracts is at ICE, and there's and we started this contract under Obama, and obviously there's, there is a lot of concern, legitimate concern, about what happens on our border, how it happens, and what does the enforcement look like. Certainly, it's a de minimis part of our work, uh, 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 finding people in our country who are uh, undocumented, but it's a legitimate, complex issue. My personal position is uh, we acknowledge the complexity. The people protesting whom I respect should also acknowledge the complexity. Is this an issue that is controversial and complex enough that the small island in Silicon Valley that would love to decide what you eat, how you eat, and, and monetize all your data should not also decide who lives under your country and on what your conditions? There are elections. There are rules. They should be enforced, a transfer of one presidency to another, and the, the view of Silicon Valley that we get to decide should not be the way these things are decided. Of course, this led to protests. My house has been protested for many months, almost every day. Our office has been protested. Many Palantirians, who do not just follow what I say, but are, are, are critical people, uh, protested against it internally. Some people were so upset by it that they left. These are very hard decisions. I respect the people that, that decide they can't be involved in this, but we have a position.
2: And are you comfortable, though, with the Trump administration's approach on the border?
3: Look, everybody who uh, knows me personally, like you, knows that I've been a card-carrying progressive my whole life. My family is progressive. I have a degree in what amounts to progressive thought. Obviously, there are many things I would do differently, and I've I've never stopped being critical of this administration. I'm not planning to uh, vote for this administration, so there are things I'd do differently. The core issue, though, is who decides? And let me, to the people who want to reduce the complexity, it's commonly known that our software is used in operational contexts at war. Do you really think the warfighter is going to trust a software company that pulls the plug because something becomes controversial with their life? Currently, when you're a warfighter, your life depends on your software. They will never trust you if you pull the plug just because you're unpopular.
2: How do you make decisions about which government allies to work with?
3: If, if they are in the West, broadly defined, and if the rule of law has a check and balance system, we work within the context of the law. If, it are, if it's other countries, they have to either be allied with America or we give them a special uh, way of uh, deciding what we're gonna do. Concrete, if you're Germany, France, America, Sweden, Japan, it's a very quick process. If you're a country, say, that's not one of them, we want to know, what are you doing with the software? How are you doing it? And we make it very clear there are checks and bounds.
2: I'll make it more complicated. Yep. So Saudi Arabia clearly um, considered an ally of this country. Uh, the administration's made that very, very clear. And yet, just over the past 48 hours, there's been a huge question about whether the leader of that country was using malware. In Jeff Bezos's uh, yeah. well, telephone.
3: The, first of all, we may, we've always made the decision not to be involved in intrusive software. So offensive attacks inside in the cyber contest, precisely because contest, because in the cyber context, intrusive infiltrations are, are 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 questionable often and are done almost ubiquitously. Um, but we in that if we were involved in that country and in those things, this would be a very serious discussion. It happens. We're not involved, and so it's not a serious discussion. But we we do we do talk very seriously and with consequences with our non-Western ally countries. Do you think it's
2: plausible that he, that he sent malware Look, it, to, hack, well, I don't, to hack Jeff Bezos' I, I don't,
3: phone? I don't know the details. I do know that it's plausible that a nation state can hack your phone in, in a, in a, fairly quickly, um, any phone.
2: Let me ask you a separate question. You have reportedly taken over Project Maven uh, from Google, which was a very controversial program in Silicon Valley.
3: Well, I can't discuss the specifics of a, of a classified pro, uh, program, but I can say if this were true, I'd be very proud. And I, I have to say, you know, it's like now many people have criticized Google. My version of it is AI, military, military AI will determine our lives, the lives of your kid. This is a zero sum thing. The country with the most important AI, most powerful AI will determine the rules. That country should be either us or a Western country. That doesn't mean you're anti our adversaries. It just means would you rather have them with the equivalent of tech nuclear arms or us? If a company decides not to work with the U.S. government on this, I think we all need to understand why and they need to guarantee they're not implicitly or tacitly transferring. This program will quite literally determine who is standing here and what they're saying in five years. And were we to be involved with it, I would be enormously proud.
2: When you look at the capabilities of China and what they're doing technologically relative to where we are and where you are, how do you see them?
3: Well, this is the thing. If America brings its A-game in software, what is America the world's best at? What are we so good at that it scares everybody? What is it? What is the community that there is, there is second to none in the world? Software. So if we bring our A-game, we will win. If we bring our D-plus game, because most people in the valley live on an island where this seems like a questionable project, they will win. Our A-game wins, our C-game loses.
2: We've had long conversations about privacy over the years. Um, There is a new debate uh, um, about Apple's uh, phone and whether that phone should be opened in the context of terrorism. Where do you stand?
3: Well, first of all, the government, we should, I believe that the government should decide things in with the checks and balances involved in the court. The government needs to provide clear rules. Tech companies need to obey those rules. If there's a problem with those rules, we should go to court. And I think all companies should should basically, part of the problem is we need a clear codex of what we're allowed to do under what context, when data can be encrypted and when it shouldn't. I think we're going to reach a consensus around this, but quite frankly, partly for the wrong reason. And the, the consumer internet companies, this is not Apple, but the other ones, have basically decided we're living on an island, and the island is so far removed from what's called the United States in every way, culturally, linguistically, and in normative ways, that we'd rather be regulated as a foreign island than be part of the united states proper and that's the core problem you are part of the united states proper regulation is part of the problem. Part of the problem is there are you are part of a larger whole that made your company possible, that is protecting you against tariffs, that's protecting you against regulation, that is allowing you to build your company. You cannot create an island called Palo Alto Island that is only subject to regulation, much like a Canton system. What Silicon Valley really wants is the Canton of Palo Alto. We don't have a cantonal system in America. We have the United States of America, not the United States of a Canton, one of which is Palo Alto. That must change.
2: Uh, Let me pivot real quick. There has been so much speculation for so many years right here in Davos and elsewhere about when your company may go public. How do you think about it now, especially in the context of the success or, dare I say, failures of some of the, the IPOs that took place over the last year?
3: Well, what I can tell you is in the past we talked about it externally and internally we said, look, we're going to defer. Now we've told the company we are going to IPO and we are preparing internally to IPO i think we will we will do very well in that context
2: and when you look though at some of the other offerings well this
3: is the thing you can basically look at this last 10 years as a the typical way to look at tech is that it was a bull market the way we look at it at palantir and looked at it for the last 10 years is it's a bull market for monopolistic companies and a bear market for everyone else and if you look at it that way you don't finance growth with the the sweet vapors of of foreign venture funds, you focus on growth with high quality revenue. That's what we've done for the last 10 years. We've told people internally that IPO will happen and you'll see the results.
2: Okay. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it.
3: Take care. Thank you so much.
1: All right, we're coming to it next.
0: Coming up on Squawk pod. One, two, three,
1: four, five, six, seven,
0: eight, yeah. nine, ten.
1: All right. Hello.
0: Hi. The team behind this week's CNBC coverage of Davos 2020. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Our TV show Squawk Box has been covering the Davos World Economic Forum for years.
2: My first year, I think, was 2006. Was I before you? No. No, I'm the show. No, no, I, no that's it's... right. You were here. When did, when did the show start? We
4: came here in 2014.
1: I think was our first year.
3: Of As Squawk the Box being here. So this is seven, seven years.
0: CNBC, on the whole, a little longer than that.
1: But I would say about 20 years we've been covering it. We have teams here from uh, Europe and Asia, as well as from our partnerships in Italy, in the Middle East, in uh, South Africa. But predominantly our coverage is driven by our US team, uh, with our Squawk Box crew, and with Sarah Eisen.
0: And all of that coverage would not be possible without our tireless expert stage crew working on the technical side.
3: They're going on the Stand by, everyone.
0: And a tireless team of pros working on the editorial side.
4: Hi, this is Katie Kramer from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland.
1: My name is Nick Dunn. I help run CNBC's editorial coverage of the World Economic Forum in Davos. <laughs> uh, uh, we just uh, saw a colleague fall into a snowbank, and that's kind of the way wh- life works here in Davos. We are on the rooftop of the uh, Congress Center here in the town of Davos, which is nestled among the Swiss Alps. And uh, the broadcast facility for CNBC is on the roof in a series of tents and uh, newsrooms with two broadcast units, one tent for U.S., one tent for uh, Europe, and a newsroom that houses about 20 uh, producers, anchors, reporters, all preparing each day's content.
4: And when we do Squawk Box Live from here, Joe, Becky, and Andrew are s- sort of you know passengers on a crazy train, I think. They sort of sit behind the desk while we bring... What, a dozen plus guests each day?
1: We have the great benefit of having the busiest green room uh, that we ever could possibly have with folks like Goldman Sachs, uh, CEO, the Treasury Secretary of the United States, PayPal CEO, Chevron CEO, all hanging out together in our green room at the same time. And then one by one, we bring them out to the set for an informative and thoughtful discussion about what's going on in the world. And then we say, thank you very much. So they go on to the back to the Congress Center and the next guest comes up. So Joe, Becky and Andrew, uh, have to, uh, to stay on their toes they do about uh, as you said 12 different interviews on 12 different companies with 12 different kind of uh, possibilities for questions and answers so it's a it's a it, calling it a crazy train is probably a good good uh phrase
2: <laughs> hip, hip, hooray! Yay. it's a good davos this year it was it was, it was nice and davos warm this year. Um, so what was the big takeaway well, you know, for me, if we come here and if the president's here, I hope CNBC gets gets to talk to him. By the way, big surprise, though. Big is surprise but, yeah. for all of the chatter, chatter, chatter about all these other issues. That this group, which often hates Trump for his style, yep, loves Trump for his economy. And that that, it, although coming here, I was once again, you know, trying to steal myself for all of the the woke comments the Andrews column in the New York Times I think framed the week very well and I know it killed him to write it and and I just want to I want to commend you. It did not (laughs) paint at all.
0: That's the podcast for today. I really gotta go.
2: I gotta go too. We gotta skedaddle.
0: Like our TV show this podcast is a labor of love. This week's Davos edition Squawk Pods were produced by me Cameron Costa with invaluable help from Katie Kramer and Krista Lella, These episodes were edited with care by Edward Fetner and Ryan Cross. If you enjoyed them, if you have suggestions, or if you just want to say hello, leave a review on whatever app you're using or find us on Twitter at squawk, S-Q-U-A-W-K cnbc squawk box is hosted by joe kernan becky quick and andrew ross sorkin weekday mornings on cnbc at 6 a.m eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our tv show right into your ears subscribe to squawk pod wherever you get your podcasts we'll meet you back here on monday
3: clear thanks
4: guys